Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This is an historic time. This is going to be a multi-year fight. Why is it taking so long to get a screening test? It is not a hoax, it is real. Something that we have never experienced before. Wash hands, wash hands, wash hands. I mean, you're the scientist, you're going to have to tell me. (laughs) Welcome, welcome to Science Rules Coronavirus Edition. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the series that brings you the latest analysis and the science of this pandemic to keep you informed, prepared, and calm. We are still all in this together, my friends. And when I say we're all in this together, of course, I mean together in the abstract. We haven't been able to be physically together with many of our closest friends and relatives for quite some time. Now, how has all this social distancing been affecting us, both mentally and physically? Here to help us understand this is Julianne Holt-Lundstad. She's a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University, where she studies how relationships and loneliness affect our health. Dr. Holt-Lundstad, welcome to Science Rules Coronavirus Edition. May I call you Julianne? Yes, of course, and and thank you so much for, for having me on your show. So how does this pandemical disruption affect us? How is it affecting our health, our long-term relationships, and so on? Wow. Um, Well, that's a big question, right? Well, you start wherever you Um, want. Start wherever you want. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, of course, I've spent my entire career looking at, you know, the extent to which we are socially connected, can have protective effects, and conversely, how being socially isolated and lonely have detrimental effects. And now we are in this situation where we have the seemingly contradictory kinds of messages that, you know, on the one hand, being with others is good for our health, but at the same time, we need to social distance um, in order to protect ourselves from the virus. And so we're, you know, really trying to understand how these current restrictions that affect our ability to connect with others are going to um, have both immediate effects as well as what are the long-term implications. So how does it affect us? You wrote this paper uh, that loneliness, wait a second, loneliness is as bad for you as smoking 15 cigarettes a day? Well. (laughs) That seems really bad for you. Over decades, in other words, loneliness will get you. Well, let me let me give you a little bit of background on where where um, that comparison comes from. So I've done two major meta analyses, and I'm I know you know what they are, but maybe for your listeners, um, if yeah, they please, may be less yeah. familiar with what a meta analysis is, is um, really that's combining the data 
from from all of the available evidence worldwide. In the first meta-analysis, we looked at all of the, the available evidence worldwide on um, the extent to which people are socially connected and how long they live. So um, these studies follow people over years, often decades. So on average, they followed people for seven and a half years. Do they use this term longitudinal? Is that a word? Yes. That, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it means um, a long longitudinal time. methods. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> these are large scale studies. So how big is large scale? Yeah. So my first uh, meta analysis included over. 300,000 people. And the second one included over 3.4 million people. That's that's pretty meta. Yeah. As meta goes. <laughs> that's big. That's big picture. So go ahead. Yeah. Brian. Yeah. So in this first one, what we found was that people who were more socially connected had a 50% increase odds of survival. And so, you know, when we found that finding, we knew okay, most people aren't going to know what that means or how to contextualize it in terms of how just how important it is for, for our health. So that's where we started. We decided we needed to benchmark it relative to other kinds of risk factors that we do take very seriously for our health. And so when we looked across all of these variety of ways that we can connect to others, what we found was that that effect on you know how long we live, that risk for mortality, uh, that was comparable to you know as, as you mentioned, um, smoking up to fifteen cigarettes per day. I mean that's the one that seems to get cited quite often. But um, we also compared it to physical inactivity, obesity, a flu vaccine, air pollution. You know all of these things that we take really uh, quite seriously. And then in the second meta-analysis, we looked specifically at social deficits. So all these indicators of, of lacking social connection, like uh, social isolation, uh, loneliness, and living alone. And what we found was that loneliness was associated with a 26% increase uh, risk of earlier death, uh, social isolation, 29%, and living alone, 32%. So a quarter to a third. Yeah, so these these indicators of of these social deficits, so lonely, being alone, do carry these significant risks. You know, the the social deficits, interestingly, were not quite as strong as as the protective effects of being socially connected. What do you mean by that? So being connected is good, but being not yeah. connected is not as bad as it as good as good kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we looked at the effect of a variety of ways of looking at this, right? And not all studies look at it in the same way. You know, I often ask my students to come up with all the different ways you could possibly measure people's level of social connection or their relationships. And, you know, it, it can include things like the size of one social network, the extent to which they perceive uh, their relationships to be supportive whether or not they live alone. Um, to me, that's the question, is is cause and effect. In other words... Oh, yeah. Okay, we is, can get into that. <laughs> it, does being alone make you eat too much and not get enough exercise? Or, or does not eating well and not getting exercise make you alone in this one example? Yeah, so we can talk about you know various health outcomes. Um, cardiovascular outcomes are actually the, one of the stronger ones. Heart attack kind of thing, you mean? Yeah, and and stroke um, is another big one. And so you're saying that lonely people have more, worse heart health. 
Yeah, we have good evidence that uh, those who are socially isolated and lonely are at significantly higher risk for heart disease and stroke. Okay, so that's correlation, but is it causation, as we love to ask? Right. That That's a really important question because I think what, what you're asking is, is it that being isolated or alone can make us less healthy or are people who are less healthy more likely to be alone and lonely? <laughs> exactly. There you go. Right. And that direction is really important. And so, first of all, there's a number of ways to to address that issue. And and in my own research, one of the ways to address the directionality of that is the fact that we use longitudinal studies. Because people were assessed initially in terms of their level of social connection, isolation, or loneliness, and then followed over time, to see who was alive and who was dead or who yeah. was sick and who was well. We understand the time course of that it's the, the social isolation that's predicting the poor health and, and not the other way around. Um, and so what we found is even controlling for initial health status. So regardless of how healthy or unhealthy someone was, the more socially connected they were, the more likely they were to be alive. And you know, the more uh, socially isolated or lonely they were, the more likely they were to be dead at the follow-up or have... <laughs> to, to be dead. More likely yes. to be dead. So so here's the question. This is the coronavirus yes. edition yes. of Science Rules. So how is the pandemic doing? How is What is it doing to us, to people? That is a great question because most of the evidence that we have is looking at these effects long-term. And so, you know, it's interesting because I think initially back in March and April, even, we thought that this was going to be maybe a few weeks. <laughs> you know, when I was interviewed about this in the first few weeks of the pandemic, most of the journalists that were talking to me were really only interested in what are the immediate effects as if this were only going to last, if, as if these restrictions were only going to last very short term, but what kinds of short term effects? And I think what's becoming more clear is that although we don't know exactly the extent to the duration of some of these uh, restrictions, it is clear that it's definitely beyond the acute phase. and what kinds of effects are happening in our bodies physiologically and how that develops over time to influence risk and to eventually become more chronic issues. So two questions. What do you mean by the acute phase? I think I know what you mean, but what do you mean by the <laughs> acute phase? You know, very broadly speaking, humans are a social species. Many in neuroscience, for instance, have looked into... Uh, the idea that our brains have adapted to expect the presence of others, this idea of a social baseline, and that when we lack proximity to others, this, in essence, is associated with a heightened state of, of alert. So, for example, you know, we would need to be more vigilant to potential threats in our environment or um, that we, you know, would need to exert more effort because we might need to handle whatever challenges in our environment on our own because others may not be around us. That's why the ship has somebody standing watch. That's why the that's why we have guard duty. And so it's it's much easier to sleep when you're not anxious. So is right. uh, 
is aloneness or being alone rather associated not just with alert, but with a state of higher anxiety also? Yeah. So um, in addition to, you know, our, our, our brains being more active and alert, um, this signals areas in our periphery that also heighten a state alert, which includes things like heightened blood pressure, heightened heart rates and circulating stress hormones. And so we've found in some of our laboratory-based studies that even just putting an individual in a challenging kind of stressful situation is enough to heighten these physiological processes as well as one's um, anxiety levels as well. And so we, we have this immediate reaction to cope with the challenges that are in our environment. And while that is a, an immediate reaction, the extent to which that reaction becomes sustained and prolonged, that can sustain uh, wear and tear on our body. Um, and so the key here now is to determine to what extent are people able to remain resilient in the face of, of these challenges and stressors. And what's ironic is that in my research, what we found one of the biggest ways to help buffer or blunt some of these heightened reactions to, to stress is social support. Researchers have argued that, that you know, loneliness is, is a, a biological motive, somewhat like hunger and thirst. Do you agree with that? Well, there is some evidence to suggest. Um, so, for instance, recently a study out of MIT found that 10 hours of isolation showed a similar neurosignature as uh, going without food for the same length of time. So, hang on. Is isolation the same as loneliness? Is being alone the same as being isolated? Th that's a great question because a lot of people use the terms interchangeably as, as if they, they mean the same thing. And that's because they often can go go together. They they can go hand in hand, um, but not always. And social isolation is really more thought to be objective. Um, so it's having fewer infrequent social contact. So you were asked about the pandemic in April of 2020. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, what predictions did you make? <laughs> what did you say was going to happen? And then what happened? One of the things that I had really hoped for was a greater awareness and appreciation for our social relationships. Early on, I saw a lot of efforts to really make an effort to look out for those most vulnerable in our communities. We saw a lot, at least in the media, in terms of singing on balconies and cheering for hospital workers and you know, rainbows and teddy bears and windows, um, really to, you know, buoy people up in this tough time. And I've seen a lot less of that. And I worry that people are becoming fatigued and, and frustrated. That can sustain uh, wear and tear on our body. We'll be back right after this. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, 
luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. If is it a real, like, horrible thing that this isolation and being alone... Uh, are affecting our immune system are actually more people getting infected than would have otherwise. Like, you know, everybody talks about how crazy contagious this virus is. Is this making it even more contagious? Ah! (laughs) Well, so there is some interesting research out of Carnegie Mellon. Uh, Sheldon Cohen has done 35 years of, of research looking at susceptibility to to viruses and vulnerability to upper respiratory illnesses. So, I mean, granted, it was using the common cold virus and and flu virus, but it has implications for the COVID-19. And what his research suggests is that, first of all, those who are under more chronic stress are more susceptible uh, and more vulnerable to viruses. But interestingly, those who are more socially connected and those who have more diverse social networks are less susceptible. So I I think the big question is, how do we remain socially connected while still maintaining the... the Physical distance. Yeah. The physical distancing. And so one area of research that we can draw on is there's a body of research around perceived social support. And some of my research, for instance, in in my meta-analysis, we found that perceptions of social support were associated with a 35% increased odds of survival. In those studies I mentioned earlier, where we brought people into the lab and connected them up to physiological equipment and and then had them do some kind of challenging task that that is very stressful. What'd they have to do? Solve a puzzle or get a shock or look at the marshmallow without eating it? It it, um, varied anywhere from kinds of arithmetic tasks to public speaking to... Um, talking about a stressful event. There, there are a variety of, of stressors that we used, but what was interesting is that what we found was that people who reported that they had more supportive people in their social network, in essence, this idea that we can count on others, had much lower cardiovascular reactivity to the stressful event. So their stress reactions were um, dampened. And what this suggests is this idea that we are better able to manage and cope and respond to the challenges that we face if we know that there are people in our lives that we can count on, even if they're not there at the moment, that just knowing we can count on them 
is enough to to have that that effect on our physiology. Of course, we know much less about Zoom particular because it's a relatively recent technology, but we've we've done experiments where we've contrasted and actually manipulated how people's friends have behaved towards them to see if that influences um, their responses to even just having an individual imagine a friend and how that affects physiology, um, even if they're not there. And what's interesting is that our perceptions of these other people, you know, whether it's friends or a coworker or... Or Wilson the volleyball, if you saw that Right, movie. right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's our perceptions that really seem to drive that physiology. And in fact, in one study, we had participants wear portable blood pressure monitors throughout their everyday lives for three days and take measurements, you know, during every single social interaction. And what we found was that that blood pressure was driven primarily based on how they feel about that person normally and less on the quality of that specific interaction. And so those global perceptions of those others, um, the extent to which you feel like you can trust that person, that can have have an important um, influence on, on our physiology. What should we do about this? Let's say you have proven beyond any reasonable doubt that feeling lonely is bad for you, shortens your life somehow. What should we do about it? So first of all, making sure that the people who, if you live with others, nurturing those relationships, making sure that the time you spend with the people that you live with is high quality time. Because of what course- What if they drive you crazy? What if they're just- Exactly. Um, because <laughs> stress, or, you know, relationships can be, um, can help us cope with stress, but they can also be sources of stress for sure. And in fact, negativity in relationships- can increase risk and has been shown across studies to to increase risk. And so really it's, you know, time spent in high quality kinds of interactions. So, you know, if you don't live with others or even if you do live with others, we also need to, you know, spend time with people outside the home. So how do we do that safely? It may be that you have, you know, conversations with a neighbor across the street or across a balcony um, at a safe distance picking up the phone, um, getting on a, a video chat or, or you know, texting someone to check in with them, see how they're doing. Uh, one of the things that research has shown is that providing support to others, being a source of support to others, not only helps them um, you know, to booster that sense of, of perceived social support, but providing support also um, may have even a stronger benefit on the person who's providing it. Um, so it helps them and it helps you. <laughs> what was it like during the Spanish flu in 1918? Were people having the same issues? You know, you're the first one to have asked me that question. <laughs> um, really? Yes, yes. Um, you know, it's interesting because systematic study of social isolation and loneliness really didn't start till much later. There is a very classic study done by a sociologist, um, Durkheim, that was done in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, that found that people who were more socially isolated were more likely to die of suicide. 
And so that was one of the very first studies to, to demonstrate any link. It wasn't until much later, um, really in the 1970s, that systematic study um, began looking at how this might relate to disease-related causes of death. One similar sort of, of case is the last three summers, I have been a director of an international studies program where I've brought students to other cultures to explore kind of what factors influence behavior and, and health. And among the locations we visited are these you know, so-called blue zones or hot spots of longevity. And what's unique about these communities uh, where they have centenarians in, in higher um, proportions than, than other parts of the population is in each case, they are very remote villages. So they're isolated. In a way, they're very isolated. And, and yet they're very tightly connected communities. And uh, they really look out for each other. So what about this mythic thing that everybody loves to talk about? Extroverts versus introverts. Yeah. Do introverts have an edge here? Are they already self-isolating in a way? You know, um, there's the assumption that that introverts maybe aren't suffering, but extroverts are are extra. Um, you know, having a really rough time during the the pandemic, and actually, data does not bear that out. Oh wow! So, so listen, introverts, extroverts, yeah. get over it. <laughs> We're all so, in this together. So data even before the pandemic showed that introverts are are no less at risk for isolation and loneliness, and and there's some data to suggest um, that they may actually be at increased risk. But but there's also international data that has been collected. Um, you know, of course, all of this is preliminary. Um, in it, it was uh, collected in some of the early weeks of the pandemic. But what that data suggested is that actually extroverts were faring better and coping better overall. So is the pandemic changing us? This is something I'm I'm very interested in because I think the pandemic has the potential for systematic change. In a good way. In a good way and a bad way. It could be good and bad. <laughs> So one of the things that has really intrigued me is recognizing just how pervasive social contact is in every aspect of our lives. And if we think about how the pandemic has changed our everyday lives, it, it has changed the way we are working. Um, many people working remotely now. Um, it's changing education. It's changed um, how we're shopping, how uh, entertainment, etc. There are social aspects of every aspect of this, right? And so each of these sectors potentially has a role to play in either making us more or less socially connected. If this pandemic changes how we design schools, how we design workplaces, how we design communities where people live. This could change the design of so many aspects of our lives that may potentially influence us socially long term. 
Thank you so much, Julianne. This has just been great. My guest today has been Julianne Holt-Lundstad. She's a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University. If you get around to it, leave us a voicemail with your questions. The number is 201-472-0785. You can also write to us at askbillnye.com. I'm sure it's your homepage. I'm Bill Nye. This is a pandemic, and we are all in this together. And now more than ever, my friends, science rules. And if you like Science Rules, Coronavirus Edition, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps us find out what you want to hear about, and helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. Science Rules, Coronavirus Edition is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. Our engineer is Luz Fleming, who also mixed this episode. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Special thanks to Casey Halford. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, everyone, science rules. Three more things. Wash your hands, wear a mask, and get tested regularly. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.